0: How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke and I'm Jake. And you're listening to Cinema Sideshow Podcast, Episode 180.
1: I want to edit in the part where you're like, "This is 180, yeah." Yes. Is it, <laughs> it is indeed 180. It is indeed. What well, well done, Zeke? Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Can you? Are you uh, going to say well done to me?
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what, what for? Did oh, you get to 180? Yeah. Oh yeah, get the congrats. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I had to work was... for that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you had to we... acknowledge. I know.
1: That that's okay. I'll I'll cry in the background. You won't be yes. able to hear it on the mics.
0: How are you, Zeke? How was your trip? It was really good. We had a okay. really nice getaway. Aww. Uh didn't watch any movies while we were away except on Ooh. the flight home, but I will talk about that Ooh. in the next segment. Yeah. How are you doing, Jake?
1: I'm I'm well, thank you feels yeah. like, I mean, to be fair, it has been a little longer than your typical week since the last show, but no, a lot lot's happened, but things have been good. I've watched a lot, but of course, before we get into that, we can talk about the trivia of the film of the week, which is very exciting for, mm-hmm. uh, I guess this is it, Zeke, our, our last uh, countdown through the decades film of the year, of course, covering the 1930s with mm-hmm. Victor Fleming's Gone with the Wind, and it is a director's corner to boot. And if you don't mind, Zeke, I'd like to jump right off that director's uh, corner. Sure. Uh, it, if you will, with my trivia of the week. Because despite the fact that this film was indeed directed by uh, Victor Fleming, he wasn't the only director of the film. You have George, uh, it's uh, Gur, C-O-K-O-R, uh, who did nearly two years of pre-production as the director. And of course, this film had a gigantic pre-production period if you will uh, and he was eventually replaced after just 3 weeks uh, into shooting where there was uh, there's a few reasons allegedly one of them is that uh David Selznick had disagreements with him about the film's pacing about other things there's rumors that i believe because he was gay he was replaced for Victor Fleming who was apparently a bit more of a macho man's director mm. so, you know of course you need men to direct love scenes of course as, as of course of course uh, <laughs> and then you had another MGM director in Sam Wood who directed two weeks of shooting due to Fleming's exhaustion towards the end of the production. So in total, he had Cougar do 18 days of work, Wood do 24 days of work, and Fleming did the total of 93 days. So I think if you have to give the credit to one director, I guess it would be him, mm-hmm. despite the pre-production work. There's, I mean, there's a lot of crazy hearsay about who directed what and all of that, but I thought that was interesting to mention... Particularly because, um, well, it's a director's corner. Yeah. So, yeah, very interesting. But we'll get more into that soon. Zeke, do you have any trivia for me about Gone with the Wind?
0: Well, there's a lot of trivia (laughs) out there. Much like the length of film. There is a lot of film here. And (laughs) that's a fantastic point, Jake. There was a lot of film there. In fact, there was actually 88 hours of footage. Oh, my God. (laughs) By the conclusion of shooting this film. Not to mention that the original cut of this film ran for four and a half hours. Jesus. Not three hours and 53 minutes, 48 minutes, to be precise, longer than the final release. Yeah. Could you imagine another 48 minutes added on (laughs) to this film, Jake?
1: There's a lot to be said about the pacing of this film. Um, I actually could imagine it, (laughs) for uh, reasons people might not expect necessarily for me to say, but... uh, yeah, there is a lot of film, and there's a lot of uh, fun little trivia facts about just the the gigantic size of it that we can, we can get more into later. But I have to ask you, Zeke, and I'm actually really curious what your answer is, um, considering I don't know exactly what your thoughts are on the film, but I can kind of gauge. The poster behind you, 1,100 films you must watch at least once in your lifetime, would you put that on your poster?
0: Would I? Pick the film that got nominated for 13 things at the Academy. Yeah, I would say things. it's definitely behind me. It's definitely
1: behind you, yes. Would creeping I put, up on you.
0: Yeah, and <laughs> I'd put it on there with... An asterisk? <laughs> no, more like a uh, disclaimer asterisk. More, I think because it's, you know, and we'll never do this film on the show because it doesn't exist in our countdown through the decades. We obviously don't include the 1920s or even the 1910s. In our mm. uh, retrospective. But obviously, Birth of a Nation, I'm pretty sure it's on that poster behind me. It is. It's one of the and first on there. it's, you know, it's widely considered a deeply inappropriate film. It's
1: actually the very third one. There are only two films that precede Birth of a Nation.
0: It's probably The Train Robbery and The Trip to the Moon, right? I think you are correct. There you go. Um, and, I, you know, this film, as yes, we'll... Explore a little deeper. It does have its mm. controversies, mm, plenty, and its critiques from those controversies, and you know we'll we'll dive into that in the second half of the show because it's very important. Obviously, Fleming's other most well known work we've mm. already done on the show, which also had a lot of uh, questionable ethics and morals on its set. <laughs> um, well, that in that's in actually a, of Oz.
1: that's actually a good comparison because I mean. I mean, there's tons of stories about the behind-the-scenes of Gone with the Wind and lots of different disputes. I mean, we just talked about the directors they went through, and MGM yeah. kind of swapping around. But I think, I mean, Wizard of Oz, on the surface, just the film without the additional context, I think kind of survives a lot of those stories. And then when you read about it after, you're like, oh my god, that sounds like a horrible set to work on. Well, Gone with the Wind, I think a lot of it still is tied to the themes of the very story I of the agree. theme. I agree. Yeah, so I definitely agree with that point.
0: Uh, mm. So, yeah, I would also put it on my 1100 list if, mm. to f- use the follow-up question because there is a lot to process yeah. a lot to deconstruct yeah. and it's a great piece of work to show um, people just what... You know, I, uh, as we'll discuss, these, these films are one in a decade, one in a generation kind mm. of films. Yep. And... It's okay that they're marred in controversy and stuff, and we should... I think it's okay to hate this film. I mm. really do. Yeah. yeah. Um. Do, but this film needs to exist for that discussion, for those thought-provoking mm. provoking thoughts to exist, and um, I'm sure we'll dive into it a little bit more in the second half of the show. Yeah. Before yeah, we get there, sure. though, Jake, mm. what have you watched in the last week?
1: Um. Yeah, like a, I like a teased, I watched a tonne. I'll quickly start with the. Uh, we had a bit of a movie night the other night at, uh, at Andy's place. It was a home theater, which was quite nice. I think I've raved about his DVD collection of the show, which puts mine to shame, but that's okay. We did rewatch Shrek 2 because the theme was a, a, classic. a classic. And uh, I've seen Shrek 2 in a long time. And I, I knew it was going to hold up. Like, I know the Discord of late. Like it's one of the greatest sequels of all time, and it holds it really well. And it does, it's, it fires on well, well, all. A lot of
0: people prefer two over one.
1: Oh yeah, no, well I mean again I haven't seen the first one in a while either but just based on rewatching it I'm like this film is just incredible. It's so funny. It's like it it expands on everything. I'm not saying anything that people haven't already talked about but like it expands on everything in such a f- interesting way and even like the the idea of like the meta um sort of um what's the word I'm looking for the postmodern sort of take on fairy tale mythology and stories and characters it continues in an even interesting way and I
0: really appreciate it this time. Has that essence of Monty Python in it when you've got John Cleese?
1: <laughs> That's a little bit. But even just when they're in like Fiona's childhood bedroom, for example, and like just being surrounded by the Prince Charming iconography and how Shrek feels so out of place with that and yeah. how he doesn't understand that she's grown up from that. It's just a lot of it I was like, This is just so clever. And as a kid you just there's so much of this going over your head. And the amount of my God, the amount of like film visual callbacks and references just sprinkled for almost every shot in the film. Mm. I was just like in awe, like, oh my god, like that's an Aliens reference. Oh god, this is a Lord of the Rings reference. Oh my god, this is a obviously Mission Impossible, they have the music in there and everything, but I was just like, it's mind boggling. Like, how many maybe, references? Maybe, are ne- there. maybe
0: ne- next retrospective, we just do a DreamWorks double feature in the poll, <laughs> see which DreamWorks uh, animated film gets some love, because we've sure, only done Pixar animated. That is true,
1: yeah. We should put Shark Tail in that Madda, as well. I was, was oh, gonna Madagascar, Madagascar verse. Well we did <laughs> Shrek. we did the D V D of Shrek 2, which was so nostalgic for me because they had the Shark Tail trailer. They had the Madagascar not not even a trailer, but like Ben Stiller like introducing the film. Which I yeah. I
0: guess you would do when a Shrek Well, DVD In, in for Madagascar kids. The, the preview is over the hedge. Right, yeah. So they always all Steve the DVDs Carrell. are
1: teasing the following things. And then of course Far Far Away Idol at the end of the DVD, where they all do the it with Simon Cow. It's it's brilliant it's so brilliant but the other thing we watched and this was sort of a meme that blake was really trying to get everyone into was to watch man vs. b with rowan Atkinson. and uh my god he did it we watched the entire series that night um in a in a darkened space on so the it's a series screen. it's a nine episode series it might as well be a feature i kind of wish it was a feature because combined it's like an hour 40 like they're tiny tiny episodes like 10 minute Bite-sized chunks, which I get from a binging standpoint. Like I that's, say that's you get people involved, and you can do like, your little cliffhangers and that. Like, I get it. But like part of me is like, first off, I want to log it on Letterboxd. It appeared, and it disappeared immediately. I was very disappointed by that. Um, but in terms of the actual, like, I guess, the, the film, if you want to call it that, itself, um, it is sort of very traditionalist, slapstick, Mr. Bean-esque comedy, mm-hmm. if not a little faster-paced which I actually kind of appreciated. I mean, the jokes sort of were coming in a quicker quicker succession, if you will. Yep. Now, again, we're sort of all in this group setting watching it, and yeah. we are just dying laughing. I think a lot of it was authentic laughter. I kind of walked away being like, I don't know if I can even tell you this was good or bad. Like, if you love the Mr. Bean sort of slapstick mm-hmm. um, comedic humour that he does with his body and everything, like, he still excels at it in here. He's still very funny. The scenarios are... It's obviously a very stupid scenario. It's he's a housekeeper in basically the parasite mansion. <laughs> it's like almost identical to the parasite mansion, and so it's always all laced with all this like extra security and technology, yeah. and it's full of all these like expensive statues and paintings and works of art. And it's, it's like every single shot is like a Chekhov's gun, just like oh, that's important, that's important, that's important, and of course, it's all gonna get destroyed and burned and thrown and kicked, and you just you know it. But it's so like. Over the top with explaining (laughs) what's about to happen, but it's so fun. You don't care. Like this is just really enjoyable. It was good Um, that
0: you're getting a laugh out of it.
1: Oh, mate, we were. Did you see my Instagram story? Was it yesterday or the day before? I did not. Oh no, it was. It was the penultimate episode where we were just like losing it for. I would say a good four minutes. Just dying laughing. Again, part of it's like the irony of watching it, but mm-hmm. we authentically had a, a just a brilliant time watching this show. It was um, So I, I kind of have to recommend Man vs. B. And uh, will there be a season two? Potentially. Who knows? There you we go. We shall see. Now, before I jump into the next thing, I've got a great segue, but I, I feel like i got to pass it over to you before no,
0: I... No, you segue. You want me to segue Yeah, yet? go for it. If you've got the great segue, take it.
1: Okay, so... Much like Man vs. B, which goes out of its way to over-explain mm-hmm. and, like, plan things, and it's like... But they, they're doing it, but it's fun, because it's a comedy and it's silly and you want to do it. That leads me to the new Jurassic
0: World film, <laughs> Dominion. <laughs> that... Uh, <laughs> oh, God, sake! Okay. So we went saw the last one together.
1: We did. We saw Fallen Kingdom, it was a
0: few of us. The funniest I, thing about mm, this is okay. a friend of the show, Abby King, mm. sent me a snap story of you and I at Hoyt's playing... Oh, with she, she and sent t- me that too, just a few days that, ago. I'm pretty sure that was the night we went and saw that, the second I, of- I think it was, yeah. <laughs> it was either that or we saw
1: A Star Is Born. It could have been that.
0: Nah, Star Is Born was a September release. Oh, good point. So yeah. you're probably right, it was probably Jurassic World.
1: But to that point, and I... And, well, we all, but I especially hated, or I shouldn't say hated, but I really didn't enjoy the second Jurassic World film. I also did not. Okay. And to this day, I still haven't seen the first one.
0: (laughs) So I've only seen... You Lucinda's the exact same. Oh, really? Yeah, she's watched the second one, but not the third, at the first. And I'm like, it's so confusing.
1: It's very rare for me to do that. But I think, uh, to your point, like we all went out as a group, like, hey, let's go watch New Jurassic World. So I was just like, okay, sure. And then the exact same thing happened this time. I guess I'm watching the third film without having seen the first one. Also, don't remember anything about the second one except the ending. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was equally as, as passive about my experience with this Jurassic World film. And I found it funny that Colin Trevorrow directed it, not for the fact that he did the first and third films, much like Abrams did the first and third of the Star Wars sequel trilogy. Mm-hmm. And of course, he ended up replacing Trevorrow in that third spot. So there's a bit of a, you know, it's like it, it's like a symmetry, it rhymes. <laughs> or poetry, I should say. Yeah. I botched the quote. But again, just like, passive experience i'm watching this not caring about the characters there's no real stakes the violence is gone like i think maybe only two humans actually die throughout this two and a half hour film and it's one of them is an extra they like it's eaten by a dinosaur and the other's like a villain but it's like it cuts away there's no blood there's no gore it's like what like i don't know like what what is this turning into mm. it's like they've got these jason Bourne esque like chases where uh, Velociraptors are chasing humans, and of course the humans are just outrunning them because, you know, they have to because we can't have death in the series. The idea of, you know, the tampering with God um, or tampering with nature and playing God and
0: the DNA stuff, I is feel that like... Not, is that not six hmm? films deep at that point? Like... Well, if,
1: if it feels like it's completely lost the uh, that, that idea, all yeah. those themes. Like, it's in there, but I'm like, it, it's so like swept up by its own scope and like it needs to be loud and bombastic and dinosaurs are chasing and there's mm. motorcycles and Chris Pat's raising his arms like a doofus. And I- I'm laughing because like it never works. He's meant to be like this like dinosaur whisperer. He raises his arm and the dinosaur's like, why are you raising your arm? I'm still going to try and eat you. Yeah. Between that and like, they got the legacy characters back. So you got like Sam Neill and Laura Dern. And I, I just thought it was so weak. The, the, the way they try and bring the back into the story yeah. and, I was just, like, completely disappointed with that. I will say, like, I liked the ending note of how they go about humanity having to learn to coexist with the results of its own sort of Mm -hmm. meddling, if you will. Like, I like that end note. And there was one sequence I actually really loved, but again, it's just so different from the action bombastic rest of the film. That it just it cemented to me that that is a big problem for the film, Mm. and it's one where Claire is sort of hiding from. I think it's a T Rex, and it's the apocalypse now shot of her slowly, sort of reverse, where she's slowly descending into this like muddy water as the T Rex is right behind her, and it's and it's quiet and it's tense and it's thrilling, and it's like that's like the one minute of the film that I liked, and the rest of it was just like so much more loud. (laughs) And I, <laughs> so yeah, I so just a rough movie. It was rough, and I and I gotta say, I can't find proof of this. I could have swore the barista in the film was Ali Plum of the um, I think the the ABC interviews or the BBC one. What I can't remember. He does these great interviews on YouTube, and I thought it was a shout out to him. So like, hey, he's got a cameo, but the internet has not confirmed to me that this is Ali Plum yet, and I'm a little annoyed because I'm I feel like I'm going mad. <laughs> I'm like, that's him. Is that not him? Who is that barista? <laughs> Oh God! Anyway, all right. So I will, I will bounce it back to you because I got okay. no good segue for the next one. But no, that's fair. You tell I, me. If Zeke. you did, I would have
0: kept you. I kept you going. <laughs> me going. Um, yeah. So look, I, I'm going to debate how to how to lump these films since our last episode. I have watched. Let's see. What is this? Seven films, including the film of the week. Woo! Boy, first time. If this was a seven-day well turnaround, be,
1: I know this might as well be a ten films with the length of Gone with the Wind. <laughs> yes. Um. So yeah. I know. Um.
0: And not to mention, obviously, I've been continuing my run of season three of the boys. Ooh, very nice. Maintaining its strength. I'm. I know you finished Kenobi. I've, I finished
1: Kenobi. I can mention that a bit later,
0: but. Um, yeah, yeah, and I'm I'm still working my way through it. Um so I'll, what I'll do is I'll, I'll look obviously we had an extended leave of absence cuz I went away. We actually only watched I'll start with that one film that we watched and we watched it on the flight home. Oh, I see. Yes. Um now due to my my situation with my technology which being like Ooh. prehistoric if you will. <laughs> uh I didn't pick the film. Um Lou did and okay. She picked a film that was like, oh, this, this seems kind of fun. It's called All My Friends Are Dead. Oh, well, that um, sounds fun. It was like a, like, <laughs> and from the description, it sounded like a kind of a murder mystery whodunit. Okay. She didn't check that it was a Polish film uh, oh, to start so off it's, with, it's which something's... obviously, you know, we like our foreign language films. On of the course, show, of course we do. So it doesn't affect us too much. Thankfully, the, it was so loud and we were sharing headphones that, um, she often struggles to watch the film and read the subtitles at the same time. Which, oh, okay. Which, uh, I know, that's quite a common problem for people with foreign language films. Sure. Um, so we ended up mostly just reading subtitles and kind of, you could roughly make out what they're saying, but... Okay. Basically, I'll read the logline to it. A group of friends at a New Year's Eve party go through a whirlwind of events that expose secrets, break hearts, and leads to shocking out- a shocking outcome. It's a very broad... Mm, That's a very broad lock line. I don't know Where are you going with this? (laughs) This is like... This goes in the category of those films you watch on planes that really... Obviously, this wasn't inbuilt into the in-flight entertainment, but I have watched films over the years (laughs) in my flights that I don't really know why it's in the in-flight entertainment because the film just makes you feel a little uncomfortable for watching it because this film had drugs and nudity and intense, like, scenes. And... (laughs) It, you know, it was, look. I didn't hate it. I, I'm not gonna lie. I, there were problems, a bit contri, a lot of contrivances. Okay, but the underlying notion and the ending was, I'm glad that we sat. We were based in the back left corner of the plane, so no one could see <laughs> the screen because it was like full on. Okay. Um, it's basically the whole thing is like. It's sort of like the what-if thing from MCU films. Mm. The, the, there's this interconnectivity to all of the different universes. Okay. And uh, in one universe, all of these characters were happy, yet it's inevitable what happens in the house. And yep. it basically, it was trying to do what like everything, everywhere, all at once was trying to do, but on a much smaller, refined scale and without any level of that. Okay. substance and, and weight that that film had. Mm. Um, fine. I, have a, I
1: have a multiversal film to bring up later in the show as so well. That or? was <laughs> the oh, bloody man.
0: multiversal film. <laughs> um, I'm going to keep moving forward. Uh, I'll tie these two films together because I okay. want to talk... Um, so, I also... We watched, last week, we watched Burlesque and Music and Lyrics. Okay. Music and Lyrics is 2007. Hugh Grant film. It's a Hugh Grant film. <laughs> That's pretty <laughs> That's much... That's all you need to know. Literally, just... He's great in that role that Bridget Jones kind of smarmy charming man right with his little quirky lines but it sits in the exact it's the category <laughs> it's the best way to describe it yeah um, it really is it's fine. it's fine it's fine it's like love actually light but <laughs> <laughs> um some nice music um, same year as once so tough competition yeah I know. <laughs>
1: it's not, not going to beat it for the oscar um, best original song but
0: <laughs> and then over to Burlesque, which I've actually been meaning to watch for a while, because it's a sort of a cabaret musical starring Cher and Christina Aguilera, oh, okay. if you remember. <laughs> that, I remember. I, of course I just, we do, see? I, I don't But, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it was, a, it was a good film. I mean, it was a good musical film. Like, they both got redonkulously like, good voices. Like, like um, Had Stanley Tucci in it. Had oh, nice. Nice. Cabaret cinematography, a simple story to follow, pretty inoffensive but entertaining. Music sure. was good, and yeah. I think that that's why I leaned quite positively towards it. But uh. I'll throw it back to you, Jake.
1: Yeah, no worries. Well, uh, I'll start with my multiversal film to throw it off. All my friends are dead. I finally watched Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness mm. since
0: it's on Disney Plus. So I was going to. Yeah, I might do it next week. Ah, uh, you don't have to, Zeke. <laughs> <laughs> Started watching Shang Chi. oh okay i would
1: would definitely recommend shang chi like slightly slightly above this oh you know even eternals i think i think uh, so much of the marvel stuff and even like kenobi and star wars and and we're gonna get into some pixar stuff in a moment as well but it's just all so safe and so clean um that it's hard to like you said it's like they're so inoffensive but they also do nothing Mm -hmm. worth your time in a lot of ways you know unless you have all the time in the world or you have that investment in those wider universes and for me when i made that realization especially with phase four of marvel that it's outside of like the gimmick stuff of like oh it's uh, a spider-man but the other spider-man and oh wandavision it's it's a it's old tv shows and they follow that stuff like outside of the gimmicks of some of these stories Mm -hmm. i just do not care about the wider story i have no idea where it's going apparently i think kevin Feige said they're going to announce soon like what what the next like thanos level story fred avengers 5 is going to be or whatever apparently it's coming soon right but until then i just feel like i have no reason to care and and especially for doctor strange where you know you've had wandavision and and both the last two spider-man films and loki and all of these things that are like the multiverse is coming the multiverse is coming everyone get excited for the multiverse and I watched Doctor Strange and it just feels like the film itself is so sick of it it just wants to like get it over and done with yeah like ah oh, we're sick oh, okay oh, yeah. we're done with it we're done move on to the next thing and I'm watching this first off I love Sam Raimi of course of course I love Sam Raimi and I love the little bits of, of his sort of cheesy unique camp horror twisty camera work style that does every now and then seep into this film and mm-hmm. it's fantastic I love the visual of of Wanda. They go full like Scarlet Witch on that in terms of like the witchy red um, puff like aesthetic, if, if you will. And I think that that works wonderfully. And I think she's great in it, even though she's sort of sort of kept in this box of just like crazy witch now, which is unfortunate. And I don't think the ending for her character really gives much promise to her future. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just seems yeah. I don't even know where to go with that, but. Like I said, I lo- I love the bits of Sam Raimi ness that come in there, but otherwise, like I said, it just feels like a film that's so sick of its own promise of the multiverse. We only go to like one different universe where people walk slower and the traffic lights like red means to go. Oh my God, I'm like, did you even try? Like we, you just mentioned everything everywhere. Yeah, and that film is just so not not like. In love it's with int- itself, but it's in love with the concept. Yeah.
0: And I think I agree with that. Yeah. And it's an intense experience. Like, yeah. you know, these are characters we only meet for the first time and we're still blown away by how yeah. much. And we walked away from it and one of our biggest takeaways was, oh, now I can breathe. Like, <laughs> Exactly. And you like, know, we and talk it- about how powerful the rock scene is. Yes, yeah. <laughs> And nothing happened. And we love that because it gives uh. us a reprieve from... The insanity of the film.
1: Exactly. And a film, I mean, the title of this film is called Multiverse of Madness. And they go to like one. <laughs> so it's, it's just such a comparison where it's like a multiverse film that's so excited about the concepts it's exploring and wants to put the audience through a very intense experience. Because like the idea of a multiverse is an intense experience where well, the world just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and we're so unable to comprehend that. And with Doctor Strange, it's like, oh, we've got to tick a few boxes for the next Marvel film. I'm like, what even happens? Everything just feels so rushed. All the action choreography is like, things just sort of happen with no correlation. We're like, Mm. oh, oh, look, the cape is now stuck under a motorcycle and Doctor Strange is, like, incapacitated in this thing. And then the action continues. And then all of a sudden, they're both free and back in the action. And it's like, what was the correlation to bring them back into the action? I just like, there's just no point to yeah. any of it the dialogue it's just so rushed it's so rushed that it feels pointless like I'm not I was really disappointed to, to put it well you sound dis- quite disappointed <laughs> I just like false promises it that's really what it felt like I will say though at the very end there was a scene where Doctor Strange turns around to a character and says so am I kid and it generally reminded me of the Gone with the Wind ending <laughs> before I had rewatched Gone with the Wind I was like that's like Gone with the Wind that ending <laughs> Oh, Christ. Anyway, like I said earlier, let's go into the Pixar end of it because I also watched Lightyear, which, of course, is the new Pixar film that's the real-life inspiration of the toy of Buzz Lightyear. It's the real Buzz Lightyear. And thoughts? I liked it. I probably liked it more than... I mean, I definitely liked it more than Doctor Strange. <laughs> and and Jurassic World as well. Like, I, I, amongst those films... It's had a bad,
0: bad week so it made it look I, better.
1: I, I know, maybe, maybe. Well, look, look I... I actually always kind of liked the idea of like, oh, this is a diff- this is the the real life inspiration of the toy, and that's why we cast um you know Chris Evans instead of Tim Allen, and that's why we've done this, and that's why we've done that. I've always kind of liked that explanation mm-hmm. so I kind of went in generally thinking like I feel like I'm gonna like this, and I think I was a little worried at first because they just sort of rattle off all the lines, you know all the famous lines there seems to be no sign of intelligence life, uh, intelligent life anywhere, or you're mocking me, aren't you? Like, all of those lines, they get out in, like, the first five minutes. And I'm like, oh, God, please. It was more rewarding when every now and then they do have, like, the shot that comes out from between the legs. It's like, oh, that was the buzz reveal shot in Toy Story, or the, the POV with his face reflecting off the mm-hmm. glass. Like every now and then I like the visual callbacks to Toy Story more than, like, the dialogue callbacks. Um, but in terms of the actual story... I was kind of surprised at how far it took the sci-fi elements of it. It generally is interstellar meets Toy Story. There is a lot of, obviously, the space travel. Um, There's a lot of, like, very on-the-nose 2001 uh, Star Wars, like, visual callbacks Mm -hmm. and references in there. I mean, they use weapons that are literally just lightsabers. Zerg has always kind of been a Darth Vader stand-in, so his presence kind of matches that. Um, And I like kind of the twist they do with Zerg, that is like, oh, this is sort of what... Buzz might become if he doesn't change his ways and his his commitment to the mission. Um, I I mean I liked a lot of those themes, and um, I I I kind of gave the film a bit more credit than I think others have for mm-hmm. those themes. And again, how far it takes so the side. Would you elements. recommend it? I would. I think I think it's fun. I mean, if you want to wait till it comes to Disney Plus in like a month, then sure. I'm not going to tell you to run to the theater to watch it. But I I generally had a fun time. I will say. So. It does start with the text, and it's sort of the the, the Arnold Schwarzenegger text of 90s action film, bold font, uh, where it's like, in 1995, a boy named Andy went to the movies. Uh, and, like It became his favorite toy. This is that movie. Mm. And I'm like, wouldn't it have been far more clever if instead you just start the movie, and then at the end, you like have the camera pull out of the theater, and then we're inside the 1995 theater, and then Andy's there with his mum, and that could have been the cool little circular thing they did and even toy story 2 does that we start in the buzz Lightyear video game and then the camera pulls out and we see that we're in a video game with rex playing it and it's like i don't know i wish they did that that would would have been a bit smarter but right. either way to that point of this being a 90s film i could sort of tell watching it's like okay well that that was sort of the embryonic idea you could always tell when the you know the the, the creatives if you were the writers and directors and that whenever they were stuck they could look back to that initial idea of, okay, what would 1995 Andy have watched in a film? And then looking back to that for inspiration on how to fix a problem. I could totally see that on the screen. Um, although I was a little surprised cause it's like, if this film was really in 1995, I don't think they would be having a uh, non-kiss uh, on screen kiss from two lesbians in the film. Cause apparently 2022 audiences are having enough problems <laughs> with that. <laughs> Let alone 1995 parents. Uh, but, um, no, I, I liked Lightyear a lot. I did. There's one other film I watched. I can bounce it back to you if you want, because I know you've still got a few you want to yeah, talk about. I mean,
0: like, uh, I've got two films that are way more contemporary releases, much mm-hmm. like yours. So okay. Well, let's just cool. dive into those. Um, so we'll start with the 2021 release, although this was quite tough to get it. It was late 2021, uh. and obviously now coming to prime, was Paul Schrader's The Card Counter. Starring, oh, that's right! Yeah, you're wanting uh, to see this. Um, Oscar Isaac, and look, obviously, I was a massive fan of. Um, speaking of Abby, a little bit earlier, mm. we were both massive fans of First Reformed, mm. um, starring Ethan Hawke, and and how we loved what Schrader did with that. With yep. that perfect mix of reality meets that sort of mythos and and just weird sort of just cre- combining the mundane with the extreme and. Um, the card counter sort of plays on this with um a character william tell who is a very good poker player you know he's a very good okay. card player um he is just you know he is out of a a long-standing prison sentence and is comes across a young youth played by uh, ty sheridan um okay. and sheridan who wants to uh basically bring to justice um the formerly serving uh oscar isaac's character william tell's uh commanding officer Mm -hmm. who oversaw the um basically the a one of the a black site, Guantamano, Guantamano Bay, which just tortured, like, prisoners of war and stuff like that. and A few good men. <laughs> yeah, essentially. And, um, basically, it sort of follows this, a very similar way to First Reform, sort of talks about how um, a priest um, is sort of having a, a conflict of, of character and spirituality when he comes across a... We recently widowed pregnant woman mm-hmm. and um this is sort of like a very similar vein to schrader's mixing some very mundane um what on the surface is conceived as a mundane reality and adding layers of of dark and intricacies and extremes and i don't think the card counter does it as well as first reform does sure. it yeah um the use of Surrealism in, in First Reformed, I find, is is more potent. Um, but this definitely has a lot going for it also. I, mm. I think Oscar Isaac's performance is incredibly reserved for his range, and often we see him in quite animated roles, at least in recent memories. So to have him in a role where he is stoic, to the point of, like, Gosling and Drive, right. level stoic, and um, calculated and... Um, sort of has that underlying demons that the John Wick, Keanu Reeves character has, but obviously to a far more um, less comical sense. Right, um, right. But yeah, it's a it definitely... I think Drive's probably an apt comparison, really. He's a character that's so quietly spoken, but mm. can be so violent without... Seemingly coming from nowhere, which yeah, the now the that, we, now, now they think about Oscar Isaac's in that too. So yeah, <laughs> um,
1: yeah the violence in drive—that's a that's a one eighty and a half right there.
0: Well, this this film does have <laughs> that, that aspect to it. There's some really fantastic cinematography in it. Um, it is a a really solid film on Amazon Prime, which is always nice to see uh, new uh, films getting like good releases and mm-hmm. having that conversation. In comparison. Although mm. I'm a little softer on this film than it's getting quite hounded on Letterbox, the oh, okay. uh, Netflix release of Spiderhead.
1: So, oh, okay, yeah, Chris we m- we mentioned this last week. Directed by I'm Joseph big- Konzinski. Yes, he did uh, Top Gun Maverick
0: very recently. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, he's had a, some people are saying, "Oh, he's how has he done the best and the worst film this year?" Like, damn, that's rough. I don't get it. I don't get what's <laughs> wrong with with Spiderhead personally it's fine but it's not bad yeah. tellers still got, gives a good performance um i think he's a very strong actor um i think chris hemsworth struggles as a. I, I think he kind of played a very similar role in bad times at the El royale where he plays this charismatic but underpinningly dangerous character mm. um you know in that he's playing like a charles Manson leader and this he's kind of playing a mad scientist um it's nice to see him try and you know broaden his range sure, his, his yeah. american accents a bit sometimes <laughs> um but overall it's a perfectly fine film it's it's sort of using it's talking it's a sci fi um sort of a sci fi prison drama mm. um in which a bunch of uh, prisoners that were sent to, like, state penitentiaries agreed to go to this more luxurious island, but they're tested on and drugged and, um...
1: But it's to reduce their sentence, isn't it?
0: Uh, it's to serve out their sentence in a different way. Right, okay. Um, yeah. in a more luxurious penitentiary, but mm. obviously... With the with experiments. ...with more <laughs> but with the experiments side, and... You know, you can sort of see where it's going, but uh, I I didn't hate it by any stretch. It's, like I said, it's getting hounded quite. um, And it has this, I think it has a compelling enough sci-fi to it. it, I think if this film was done with no star power behind it, it would get more praise, maybe because it's got clearly a lot more money being peddled into it that Mm. people are a bit more critical of it, but... It's it's a fine film. It's a tight ninety seven minutes or mm. something like that. So, um, not a bad film. Yeah. Um, that's curious. It'll be curious. I haven't watched Top Gun, so it would be nice to watch Top Gun and see what the and even watch Oblivion. He clearly Kaczynski clearly likes sci fi. Mm. Yeah, he's done Tron Legacy and and Oblivion, kind of quest like strangely high budgeted things <laughs> from nowhere. So, they're, they're always directors that are quite curious to me, how they land in right. such high-budgeted films.
1: Oh, that's who you know.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but, that's it. Um, yeah, I'll throw it to you.
1: Yeah, cool. So, I think I'll I'll wrap it up. You, you mentioned streaming service. So I'll mention my streaming mm-hmm. service. And Paramount Plus, which I got a week uh, free subscription of, probably not going to renew it. This was really the only film I wanted to see from it, which is Jerry and Marge Go Large. Now, this is uh, Brian Cranston and Annette Bening. Uh, who play and it's based on a real life story this uh, this older couple who've retired and um, there's there's a bit of a history here with with jerry who's um kind of has a history of of being a bit of a problem solver Mm -hmm. and then kind of a mathematical genius and the film doesn't really go into that because i read the article that it's based on which is the huffington post article of the same name same title of the film so i recommend you read that it's a pretty pretty long read, but I found it very rewarding because it goes far deeper into the history of the lottery, his mm. history as a person, and sort of a, a maths problem and his sort of ingenuity in numbers, which I think the film kind of skims over a little bit. The film focuses more on like the very a very wholesome, sort of brightly lit, cheesily scored mm-hmm. sort of you know feel good movie, and that's fine. You go into a film like this where there's sort of this capitalistic angle where, you know, they figure out a flaw, or specifically Brian Cranston's character figures out a flaw in the lottery, and they use this to just make a crap ton of money. Now, I liked the idea, and again, this is based on the true story, but they, they tie it in together in a clever way where they're pretty much raising the money as part of a hobby. They end up making mm. millions and millions of dollars, but they all funnel it... Into the community because they live in this very small town, and you know a lot of small businesses are closing shop, and it's you know everyone's sort of neighbourly and friendly there. So it's sort of this good cause of of funneling the money back into the town to sort of you know to ingest life into it and and create a yeah. good, you know environment for the people around them, and they juxtapose it by these characters later on these. I think they're Harvard, but then I read the article and it wasn't Harvard, it was like um, MIT and a few other places, uh, but basically these university college kids who also figure out the flaw and then they use it for much more selfish reasons and then they sort of get into this um, group war between the two different groups of because eventually they're going to eat each other out alive if too many of them are using the exploit. So it becomes a bit more dangerous, and oh, maybe they're going to hack their system and mm. um, ruin their lives, and it, it it gets a bit interesting like that. It, like it never gets too dramatic. It's sort of focused on its wholesome storytelling, and in a lot of ways, it's pretty lazily told. Like I struggled to give this a free film. I enjoyed watching it. I had a great time watching it, but it's not an overly clever film. Like instead yeah. of, you know, when he these first month of retirement, they just say one month later. So you couldn't have just shown a montage of you know what that boring one month of post retirement looks like um, even when he f- like looks at the back of the lottery she actually figures out he makes this like in- incredible discovery and it's just like oh he just handwrites on a piece of paper and then the text comes up in front and there's like there's no you know energy to it there's a lot of like laziness in the storytelling even the narration there's just like a narration at the start and the end of the film that kind of has no purpose but then again brian cranston very watchable annette benning very watchable fun time so I, it's very innocent and in like, like you said it's very inoffensive that you, you kind of feel bad for wanting to rip it mm-hmm. because it's so well intentioned um but yeah I, I just thought it was interesting and i want to give a shout out because we've we've joked about films like the game Changers and the founder especially sort of the trope of the the pointless wife Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, like especially in the founders like you have Laura Dern and her role is just, just be a wife who has like no lines and is yeah. there and they kind of play with that in the sense that Annette Bening looks a like a wife that. basically
0: to be replaced literally
1: literally and they, they play with that a little bit but then as soon as Annette Bening finds out about this and sees this as an opportunity not to make money but to essentially save their marriage because their marriage is so boring at this point and then her like involvement actually kind of really enhances the film, and I think... So I liked that they kind of teased that trope was going to come in, but then turned it around. I was like, oh no, she's actually a wonderful asset to the cast. And you've got Rain Wilson and Michael McKean. There's a lot of fun people that kind of come into the play. Some of them are very underused, but nevertheless, fun time. And the only thing, like we mentioned earlier, I did wrap up on the Obi-Wan Kenobi uh, Disney Plus show. Um, Yeah, I thought it was, you know, decent ending. I think... If you do enjoy the prequels and and for context I watched this last episode with my brother mm-hmm. and our our Star Wars history goes back a long time he's the one that of course introduced me to the franchise he's the reason I watched the prequels first before the original trilogy <laughs> and Fair. he he just he loves he loves any and all Star Wars unanimously there's no love or hate or anything he loves episode 2 as much as he loves episode 5 and so you know on from that standpoint he was very excited to watch it I was excited to sort of watch it from that standpoint mm. as well. Um, and it I don't want to spoil it for you because you haven't seen the last episode yet, but pretty much all of the things that we talked about where it's like, oh, they could do this, they could cheap out and do this fan servicey reference here. They could do this, they could do that. They just dump it all in that last episode. But to to its point, I kind of didn't mind a lot of it. Okay. There were certain cameos that I was like, you know what, if you are a fan of the prequels, and th- there's a ver- there's a line at the end of episode three that as a kid watching the film really excited me to no end that they finally paid that line off in the Obi-Wan series and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about when you watch the last episode but i yeah it's it's fine i know some people are crapping on it and some people really love it it is what it is i i had a decent enough time with it no worries. But that's everything I've seen this week, Zeke
0: <laughs> Yeah, so the only other thing I watched this week was a, another 1930s film, because I've been really Ooh. trying to kind of get two in each decade right. this time around. Of uh, so it's the Lewis Milestone, All Quiet on the Western Front, which, mm. in its own fair, you know, its own... Um, uh, what am I saying? In its own vein, mm. is an iconic 1930s film. Okay. Um, Lewis Milestone went on to go direct uh, other films such as the original Ocean's Eleven. Ooh, um, fancy. And uh, the original Of Mice and Men. Um, oh. <laughs> which is basically a lot of books on that then we <laughs> then watched the more contemporary versions of. It. But anyway, All Quiet on the Western Front is an iconic um, World War One picture. Yep. Uh, I have to say, I was blown away by this film. Ooh. You know, we're talking about technical feats, I think some of the one-takes in this film, you know, we talked about it with Frankenstein mm. um, not too long ago um, sure. with some of the amazing one-takes and that, but all quite on the Western front, kind of, it, in my opinion, for a film made nearly 100 years before 1917, <laughs> did 1917 better. Like, wow, okay. It's, there are, from a story point of view, for instance, mm, we follow ask, yeah. a collection of um, six German soldiers um, through the events of World War I, in which the sides were a little bit more ambiguous. In um, Obviously, we're going to touch on sides <laughs> and depictions in a conflict in our film of the week, but yep. obviously in World War One it was a little bit more contrived and a little bit more nonsensical why World War I took the shape it did, particularly from the perspective of adolescent men. Mm. Who, like we talked about in our Gallipoli review, sort yes. of volunteered for a war um, unknowingly, and obviously what Peter Weir does with that 1981 film is is fantastic. But you know this film's 50 years older, mm. and it was very impressive. Um, not a lot of it as it, it, it's been hallmarked as a true timeless war picture, and I have to agree as a as a guy who's watching it yep. 93 years later. Yeah. Um, i'm i'm blown away by how impressive it flows how much sense it makes um there might be maybe one or two scenes in there that are a little hokey but i i couldn't help but watch it and was blown away by how much substance i got out of scenes that i related to what a series that i watch every year which is band of brothers yeah from Spielberg and it's like you can tell someone like Spielberg 100% watched a film like this and and countless <laughs> pictures yeah because yeah, it's like it's short of it, you know it raises the questions of how the the elderly were foster, uh, were motivating the younger men to take up arms in a war that when they went out there the, the disjointedness between life and, not, and there were episodes in both Band of Brothers and the Pacific that sort of touch on that and they do it very well I'm not saying mm. they don't but like I said, it's just amazing. This film took on such a, honestly, such an interest from a challenging point of view. Obviously, things like all of the characters speak English and they have American accents, but they're playing okay. German soldiers, right. so they're not using German. It's almost accents. authentic, right? Yeah, but it, <laughs> but it's, it's sort of trying to. And when they interact with French people, the French people are speaking a foreign. They're speaking French. Okay, so it's it's meant to be that. Sort of thing that I would have liked, obviously, if you were to be really picky, it would have been really cool in those scenes if they started speaking German. So it's sort of like oh, of those n- where yep. it becomes, we're, we're hearing them English, but they're really speaking German to each other. It's just like the normal, like, but when they interact with another foreign, then we actually hear that. Yeah. Vikings does that where oh, characters speak English yeah. until they're interacting with a different country yes. and then they start speaking Norwegian, Right. Okay. And it's sort of like this thing where it's like, you don't want to watch a whole show in Norwegian, so we're going to show you the language barrier yeah. and represent it, but then revert back to it, and then you're based off that assumption. That's Obviously, a
1: risky thing to do as well, because like, you need to trust your audience to really get what that is implying.
0: It's in the first episode of Vikings, Yeah, though. That's awesome. So it's very quick. Like, oh, no, I'm like, saying it's great, yeah, yeah. It's a fantastic way of doing it, because it moves through that language barrier so you're not watching a whole show in norwegian or in this case you're not watching a whole movie in german yeah which for 1930 audiences would have been a too much to ask yeah well i'm Whereas, guessing
1: an american 1930s audience as well exactly yeah.
0: so t- i think it was to take it that step further and position you know the opposition mm. um in a more positive like in a more positive light obviously you probably couldn't do that with things like world war Two or the american civil war but we'll <laughs> oh but they tried <laughs> um but we'll, we'll we'll dive into that but yeah overall i think it's a fantastic film and mm. would definitely make me want to watch some of his other films particularly the original oceans 11 that must be fun
1: yeah i'm really curious about that um, that is but, a sick find i d- actually you know i did notice this on your letterbox i was like wow okay
0: was this on netflix nope I have a DVD. Oh, then, pff, there you go. Um, <laughs> so sometimes when I don't know what to watch, obviously I have an. Al- I'm much like you. I have an alphabetized uh, DVD, DVD collection. collection yeah. I just start at A. Look for the next one that I haven't watched. Oh, just... that's clever. So that's why I watched An Affair to Remember because we were in the 50s and I was like, oh, it's a 50s film at the yeah. time.
1: Ah, oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. I should do something similar because I each each sort of block of DVDs I have about anywhere between two to ten DVDs I just <laughs> haven't watched. Um, Some of them are really atrocious if it's like 10 movies within one block that I haven't seen. But I should do something like that, especially my A's and my like started zeros or my mm-hmm. numbers. I should chop through that. But no,
0: yeah, no worries. But that's yeah, all yeah. I've watched this week. As I've said, I'm just yep. continuing through those shows. It is time for us to move. Mm. I, I doubt you have any career updates this week.
1: Oh, I got something, but I, it might actually be more relevant next week to mention. So cool. this is already a, a, a gigantic episode, Zeke. Yeah gigantic proportions (laughs) there we go
0: so we'll move into (laughs) our final film for the countdown through the decades retrospective for its third year Mm. Jake it's a director's corner who's the director and what are we watching
1: oh like we talked about before it is uh, Mr. Director Victor Fleming what an unfortunate surname Of course, we're talking about his probably his god I guess it would be more so than The Wizard of Oz I mean they're huge 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 films from 1939 but Zeke you your question. Those of you on the show are watching Gone with the Wind.
0: Gone with the Wind has captured the imagination and acclaim of the entire world. The screen has never known a love story to compare with this. When Rhett Butler meets Scarlett O'Hara.
2: I love you more than I've ever loved any woman, and I've waited longer for you than I've ever waited for any woman.
0: Let me alone.
2: Kiss me once. Can't we ever forget that day at 12 Oaks?
0: do you think I could ever forget it? Have you forgotten it? Can you honestly say you don't love me?
2: No, I... I don't love you. It's a lie! Well, even if it is a lie, do you think I'd go off and leave Melanie and the baby? A love affair you'll remember as long as you live, filled with all the fire and fury of the times in which it happened.
0: with the wind. First picture to win ten Academy Awards. The most honoured, the most talked about motion picture in all film history. The spoiled daughter of a well-to-do plantation owner is forced to use every means at her disposal to claw her way out of poverty, following Major General William Sherman's destructive march march to the sea during the American Civil War oh fair enough that second half was quite interesting oh. I would have I should have just left it at a way out of poverty but here we go gone with the wind yeah
1: was that our intermission just then Zeke <laughs> and now we're jumping into the film of the week
0: yeah well we got a lot to get through so I just went <laughs> no break we're moving through oh,
1: fair enough fair
0: enough you know
1: um is this is this a true success of the top gun cuz the amount of times it says sweet balls of fire
0: <laughs> great balls of
1: fire this <laughs> is success I would have killed in, in to uh, watch top gun again oh there you go we well, so mate you got to watch maverick are you kidding me i know you have have seen maverick I know. this, this is, it hurts my soul but uh we're not talking about maverick we're uh, we've gone a good 90 years back into the past we've gone with the wind and i got to say so I've seen this film before, I saw it around, Was that, I thought it was during COVID, it was apparently right before COVID, it was episode 56 when I gave it a little shout out, but I didn't really talk about it in full, because that was the episode that where you just got back from your mm-hmm. American trip, so we literally had like 150 films between us to talk about, so I I pretty much barely gave Gone with Wind a shout out then. I didn't go into my elaborate thoughts at the time, which but it
0: hasn't gone with the wind. No, no, it, it, it definitely came blown back, blown back to us, <laughs> and, with um, a four-hour gale force. I
1: know, I know, but um, but unlike me, this is this is the first time that you've seen it. Yeah, and um, how how was the four-hour journey? Zig? Did you get snacks? Did you? I did the first time. I got some snacks and drinks, and
0: I know I really I prepped sh- myself for it. I really should have. Feel like I would have enjoyed watching this film with someone else. I think okay. um, someone help someone helping you climb the mount the mount do a
1: Melanie to your to your Scarlet are you asking? Yes, well <laughs> we boy. all want to be more
0: like Melanie. We don't well, want to be like Scarlet <laughs> True This movie this movie really should be uh Scarlet No Means No. But um <laughs> What did you say to me
1: before? This is uh, uh, she, that Scarlet's the biggest mess in cinematic history. <laughs> That's a I think it's line. I,
0: it's a t- look, there's so much to talk about, and I think my uh. the best thing I can say off the top is this is the 1930s version of the 90s Titanic or the mm. 80s Avatar. It's a film that's so epic in its proportion and yields the biggest to-date box office return after Adjusted for Inflation. Still
1: to this day, number one, but yes, Adjusted for Inflation. Um.
0: So that just, that absolutely slots it in the categories of Cameron's Titanic and Avatar, because, um, and I'm sure there's probably one or two other films that we could probably slot in there, but it's sort of, and obviously it has the third most nominations in Oscar history.
1: Yeah. Well, there's, there's several different, um, sort of Oscar Academy related milestones of this film track. I think it's the best colored film to win best picture. Mm -hmm uh it has the longest performance to win an oscar in vivian lee's performance at like i think it's like 2 hours and 23 minutes screen time for her which she i mean she carries this film uh, not even just for the the quality of her performance, but just how much she's in it and literally has to
0: do. She gets paid, like, one-eighth of what her male <laughs> co-star... I think it was uh, like something 120 to 20 or something yeah. like that.
1: Yeah, well, I think it, it's tricky because there's a great video on Be Kind with Wine's YouTube channel about her and her Oscar nom slash win, and even just the casting. It took them years to cast her role, and she was a relatively unknown actress when they cast her. So I think that compared to, like... Um, obviously to Clark Gable I think that makes sense on the surface of it obviously I think she walked away with a bigger presence in this film and and watching it I was surprised at how many relationships mm. are important not just the one she has um, with Rhett in the film but to continue on with the Oscar discussion it's also the first um, nomination win for a black person in any category for Hattie McDaniel um, who obviously won best supporting as well um And Good I think it is still, to this day, the longest film to win Best Picture. Yep, so it is. Yeah, yeah you know, it is. So, so there's a it's, lot
0: of first here. There is a lot of firsts. And obviously, uh, you know, it, you're, you're probably right. Obviously, it takes so long to cast her and such. But obviously, that's a, a hallmark of the inequality at the time, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, you wouldn't probably see... You'd hope that, you know, we probably haven't come far enough. And there'd still probably be a... There is a... I know there is a factor of star power that does play into profits, but yeah. obviously well, it still, still plays in the profits. Yeah, yeah, and it's you know, six times smaller is still six times smaller, I think, for mm. someone who's obviously working so much. Yeah. Um And then obviously, you know, like you said, Patty McDowell getting uh the first ever African American to get an Oscar and mm. a lot of controversy behind that too and
1: Yeah, well she was still um Segregated from the actual event, yep, um not allowed to sit with her castmates. there was a lot of i mean that's it it's 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 not even just the themes inside the movie, but even just like you said, the outside context there's still a lot going on, which is yeah. really often and weird that it still happens in this life
0: and I, I think it's for me as a first time watcher it's, it's mm. such a fascinating thing and and reading into the film ended up being an enriching experience and i i admit i was watching the film and reading a little bit on the side because i'd be watching and I'd be like oh it's a fantastic shot but mm. something's just not sitting right with me with this film um and it's not the i think what it is was at its at its core and it's it was the romantic the romanticism of of uh, and the disposition this film takes from its opening scroll mm. Where it's basically like, oh, this this is the story of the death of a of a a culture, a right. death of of civilized of, of the deep south, and then this ideology, and we watch as it slowly dissipates and sort of rejoins what now we start to slowly refer to as the contemporary America, mm. an America that's more integrated, more capitalistically driven, and um less. But the funniest thing is it it's still tries to romanticise a group that... And I I admittedly, going into the film, I actually I knew a little bit about the Civil War, American Civil War, but sure. I had to read a little bit more about it. And right. I was like, there was a few this, terms I needed to look up. Surely this film doesn't... And obviously finding out that the novel had been written not too long beforehand and yeah so it's like 1926 very, contemporary. very yeah.
1: much a short time period so yeah
0: yeah and, and that's quite fascinating so right like this this contemporary transcription and we've seen that with novels all the way up to today like a novel's written in 2018 film comes out in 2021 like yeah but i was like surely this is this this film wasn't sitting even well back then, mm. and obviously you know he hadn't even had you were twenty years shy of civil rights movements, but you know it's I remember, Follett, while watching the film. I'm reading oh there's a quote from Malcolm Epps who watched this cin- film in the cinema. Okay, and it's sort of like you know when he sees the depiction of on screen African Americans, he would he he curled up in his seat because mm. he was so disgusted by this. You know, obviously African Americans are portrayed in this, their comic relief subservient roles. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's, you could, uh, like, they go, oh, well, it's progressivism relative to the time. Yeah. But then at the same time in the 1930s, the, the whole, the, there was a massive sort of cultural debate around lynching laws mm. in the early 1930s, which is huge when you think about it. Um, when a film like this comes out and it's trying to rose tint a, a very dark period in in american culture which is at the time was only what 70 years removed yeah 60s, yeah years I, removed. Mean, I
1: mean that is important that as as far as removed as the film is from the civil war in this time that there's that extra gap that now we're talking about this film you know coming up on a hundred years later um that the debate is there and like you said the the even in the time as as the film was coming out, there was the criticism, and it was probably marginalised, and probably a lot of the media was pushing back on this. As like, oh well, let's just focus on this film. It's the biggest film of all time. Let's all we've got to we've got to celebrate this film. And I think in regards to the depiction, I mean, a lot of it does, like you said, a lot of it comes from like the text scrolling and and the moments where the film just like writes text and sort of explains things. And it's the way that it's written that I think is the most egregiously. Um, one-sided way to, to mm-hmm. write it, for lack of a better... <laughs> it's somehow it trying
0: to, like, honestly, the opening scroll, from there you just get the disposition. They're, they're trying to make it out like somehow the Yankees were the bad people. Yeah. Somehow... There's evil the, Yankees. The, 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 even the worse white, was the, the carpetbaggers. Abolish- uh, <sighs> well, it's the abolishment of slavery, yet, for some reason, they're the oppressed, and they're the ones being driven out of their... into yeah. poverty, and... You you kind of like okay, the the low key undertone that Rep Butler was like a supporter of Clue Klux Klansman. <laughs> and I don't know and I, it's so funny to read up that Spike I have to go back and now watch Black Klansmen because apparently there's an, a sort of a, a rhetoric or uh, at least yeah. a retort to this commentary and and look I think this film is great that it has such a level of divisive um, mm. argumentiveness because. You know, like, from when this film's shown to film students coming through into tertiary education, a a general consensus is I love this film, but I also hate this film. Mm, Okay. And I think that that's that conflict of character that sits there because, yes, it is grand in scale and it's really hard to uh, argue with the, the, the sheer scope and size, but... To what I I always ask: To what end? Uh, um, yeah. Twenty years earlier to this film, twenty twenty, we have a Birth of a Nation, which now is wholeheartedly regarded as a as a and a senseless film. Mm. Yet was the first ever feature film that was completely and utterly biased by nature, and and is still hallmarked in cinematic history, and will always be hallmarked, in it will never be redacted yeah. from that history, and. Even as cinephiles, you you're you're actively encouraged to watch these films because you you sort of sit there and go, well, I don't agree with any of what's being shown to me, but I can't argue with the history side, I guess. Yeah, well,
1: I think in in a lot of ways, and I actually thought about this a lot today, um, before we obviously started recording, is you know this film brings out so much context of of the time both the context around the film and then what's depicted in the film and how that text is written and how african-americans are displayed and the performances that they give and characters respond to that there's so much in there and i mean that's just the beauty of film in general is that it is a time capsule of time periods and and there's not a lot of mediums out there that really do date back this far and i think you have this thing where a lot of people especially young people are just oblivious to how horrid the majority of human history is and when you have you know a tangible piece of you know in this case a film that you know there's cameras and they're filming real life performances of real life people and almost everybody is dead now who was <laughs> mm. who who was on camera in this film but with with the exception of books i don't think there are really any other mediums other than film that authentically represents a time period and as much as we can sit here and watch the birth of a nation and disagree with literally every single point that it brings to the surface the fact that it does exist and brings this time period and that we as a human race are kind of smart enough to interpret it and compare and contrast it to the values that we have as a society as a society today i think that's great that it exists yeah and that it is what it is and and, and-
0: I I yeah. think obviously a film like this especially based off a novel does come from a, no- a novella in its own right as a subject discourse so it's mm. it's subjective to the author the author's opinions the author's bias and, yeah. and um the producer of this film you know Selznick, he actively um, among the screenwriting department did make efforts to find of um water down and make the film mm-hmm. a little bit more consumable for main and a little bit more culturally appropriate because yep. the depictions of African Americans were far harsher in the novel compared mm. to what you end up with in the final product. Yep. So there w- there was a degree of at least professional consideration there or ethical consideration because yep. the original n- novel apparently had far more um like that scene when Scarlett is getting mugged is meant to be yep. by African American Men right. now rather it's the Yankees. than in the shanty town. Now it's the Yankees, yeah. but instead they make it that, <laughs> the and, then, and then an African American man comes to the aid yes. of Scarlet. Yeah, they so very much make a point that, of that. scene has been completely and utterly flipped. Mm. And I mean, I know it's a small allowance; it's a very small allowance. They're, they're still living in, uh, you know, there's still that subservient nature or comic relief part. Like, well, in uh, that scene, no, but okay, with but in our general. main cast, sure, yeah, you know, sure. Like, Patty McDowell's character is literally like her her nuances are 50 years before eddie murphy did certain <laughs> like it's an over animation style sure. which becomes culturally normal in hollywood pictures of their depiction of african-american
1: yeah pictures. but on the same token it's like the i swear to deep appreciation for a character as someone like you wouldn't call the relationship which she has with Scarlett that of an equal relationship but there's definitely like a motherly caring sense there and that she does care for scarlet and i thought it was sort of interesting that that is there and it's not completely overt there are moments where she slaps i don't have the the character name but apparently actress name butterfly mcqueen which is a great name by the way um where she reveals like oh i actually don't know how to birth a child and scarlet straight up slaps her across the face and it's like I get that's like a frustration of a character moment, but also can't feel not uncomfortable knowing the dichotomy of that relationship. Well, she is a slave.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the, the obvious, and that's sort of, yeah, it always sits there. And I think like, this is where I come back to the romanticizingness. Now it's that it's that thing. It's like, Oh, well, you can't really in a film that's meant to try and depict itself as lighthearted. I don't think this film is trying to depict itself as very lighthearted. It, it's an, it's a, it's a Jane Austen odyssey of romance and <laughs> life in a, as it says in the opening scroll, it's the following of the death of a cultural identity. Mm. um, This identity that it actively endorsed things that were not human or they weren't ethical. And they try and save it with, like I said, with Selznick tries to save it with, um, Lines like Ashley being like, "Oh, I would have released all of my slaves if when father died," and it's like, "Yeah, but it's, it's a bit so, okay." <laughs> Until then, <laughs> or yeah, yeah, you know, or yeah. the relation, you know, and and it's quite interesting. Yeah, it's very soft, soft. It's passive progressivism. The nineteen thirties. <laughs> it's been around um, for a long time, as they say. Um, but I I think it's an important thing to address because when you watch this film, it's it's it underlies. It's so
1: tied to that like controversy and and, spe- and like you said the values of, of our society as this is just so drastically different from those of the vast majority of the characters we're following in this film and yeah. i think there's a good chunk of the so film that i feel like is kind of getting away with oh well we're just following these people and like the interpersonal dramas of of you know scarlet and Rhett and the love affairs and all that but it's like it's such an important... The Civil War is the backdrop of the entire film.
0: It's so interesting. It is, like I said, it's it's very interesting that... To pick up a film that talks about this sort of grand... Like you said, it is a backdrop of the of the film. And, and actually, the whole film covers the whole Civil War. Um, mm. And its whole duration. And, and the Yankee... And to, to frame the Confederates... Even at the time in the protagonistic way for Hollywood is is, seemed very interesting to me (laughs) because yeah, I guess it's a it's a it's this this grand Odyssey story that basically centers around a love triangle and it's not even really a love triangle. It's it's like Scarlet getting told no every hour (laughs) and coming back and going, Oh, maybe this time This time it's like Um, the B movie, this time, this time, this time, this time. Man, Scroll why Redbelly? To... I don't know why he sticks around as long as he does. It's just... <laughs> and I know it's that whole like, oh, you can't control who you love thing, but
1: yeah, it's interesting. I mean, look, to 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 view the film from this standpoint now of, of like a pure, you know, love triangle, let's call it a love triangle just just for the sake of simplicity
0: <laughs> at the forefront if... of one of America's, well, the the greatest American civil conflict.
1: Yeah. And and the idea of I well, to be fair, I'm going to knock the film some point since my rewatch, because I think mean, I actually do think the second half, and you can easily split the film into the two halves with the intermission in the middle. I mean, the second one just doesn't feel anywhere near as organic in its pacing. I did, by the end, it's like, this happens, then this happens, then this happens, then this happens, and this happens. The like, amount of it. fate to
0: blacks <laughs> in the second half of the film. It's like scene, fate to black, scene, fate to black. It, it feels very stage play
1: Oh, it definitely feels like a stage play, and you've got... Yeah, your, but I, I text, would never want I'm things? not going to lie. I'd never
0: want to sit in a four-hour stage play. <laughs> like, <laughs> cut that down. Cut that down.
1: Yeah. Oh, they cut something down, apparently. That's the best I'd... thing I could do. <laughs> Baffling. <laughs> well, this is what I mean, is like, I think mean, the second... it just like, this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens, and it doesn't feel like it flows nearly as well as the first half does, or I guess the first 100 minutes does. Well, I think that flows far better. That's a far more... Um, work while first, watch
0: this film could be three hours. I can't believe I'm saying this film could be three hours. <laughs> this film could be three hours, not three hours fifty three. Uh, you could cut, you could cut like forty minutes out of the second half of this film. Yeah, like, like well, that. Well,
1: you, you the second you really start to lose kind of the point, and I get I get the point. And I, I the part of the film I do love is just the wide journey that Scarlet goes on from basically from Rich's to rags and then the climb back up and sort of the midpoint you know, I'll never be hungry again speech. Like, that. that journey, I think, is wonderful. But it also, again, I think it meanders so much in the second half. When it finally gets to that very last point where she she has a realisation about herself. But then again, she really doesn't because she has a realisation. By this point, Rhett is just so fed up with her shit that he's like, well, I'm leaving. and I don't give a damn. Yeah, but he's, and, and he's the
0: same. He flip-flops. He goes, oh, I'm done. I'm done, and then he will be like, "No, I love like power through. You, you're gonna get I, your return." But it's always with the same woman,
1: though. And I mean, and with Scarlett, she just keeps going through these different men, and it's sort of, you know, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna get with this person. I'm gonna get with um Charles to continue to, you know, to get back at Ashley, and oh, he's dead now. So it's like, all right, I'm gonna try and get, um, get with my sister's fiance Frank, and then he dies, and it's like there's there's a lot of circling around for her. Well, I think at least with Rhett. He's consistent in the sense that it's always with her, even if he's feelings sort of fluctuate. You can't blame him for having feelings that fluctuate because
0: well, she treats him pretty so poorly for most of the film. It's the most toxic relationship to watch on camera. <laughs> and it happened in 1939.
1: Uh, well, it's, it's interesting because like there's a lot of great visual stuff there. I think the most important relationship in the film, and it only really hit me this time, is the one she has with Melanie. They are this, the polar opposite in terms of their personalities, and it's like there's such a jealousy she has for Melanie because she's with Ashley, and that ever since she was 16, she, Ashley's the man that, that she's always wanted to be with, but you have Melanie who's so consistently just kind and sweet and, and always forgiving of Scarlet as well, always making excuses for Scarlet, always giving her the benefit of the doubt till the very last second to her death even I guess we're doing spoilers <laughs> forgot with the win i know yeah, 80, 80 year old film <laughs> but I think that was the most interesting relationship because again watching it the second time and I kind of forgotten a lot of what happened so I yeah. forgot whether you know does melanie die does she turn I forgot the answers to all those questions and was really surprised even to her dying breath that she was always. Sort of looking out for Scarlett in her own way, and and Scarlet has such a clear jealousy of her. There's a great shot when they're in the the hospital with the wounded soldiers, and you see the sh- their shadow cast on one. It almost looks like Scarlett's like braiding her hair. There's almost like a relationship, but then in reality, she's just sitting in the side being like, "I'm bored. Can I go home? I don't care. All these people die. I want to go home." Yeah. <laughs> she's very bratty, and I and I think that she's p- a,
0: you have to follow this person around for four hours. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. She is one of the most infuriating protagonists you're ever going to watch. Because, like, I, I kind of get it, but... Right. And she almost isn't the protagonist. Like, she's sort of... She's her own worst enemy. There are so
1: few times where she does sort of... What, what a modern actress would do in a sort of complicated role like Scarlett is meant to be. And I say meant to be because I think you're right. She does come off... She's more... She's more of a a whinging crybaby than she sh- and, than than otherwise. But yeah, she, she evolves a into balance. an
0: author But she flip flops between being authoritarian. Like yep. she gets herself out of. For, she goes of from rags yeah. to riches, through her own motivation. She starts yep. a, the lumber business. She sort of manipulates a couple of men and navigates the way so she can yep. become this matriarchal businesswoman. But then almost as soon, throws as soon as it all.
1: Ashley's away. in frame again. She loses her shit. <laughs>
0: So, I, and he's such a... I'm sorry. He's just the most whingy like <laughs> flaky man. What, Ashley? Yeah, like he comes, like he comes back from the war, <laughs> so happy to see his wife, and then immediately flakes off and goes nax on Scarlet, doesn't he? Like, and he's just like, oh, I can't do it. I can't do it. But my lips are going towards you. Like, <laughs> like, He's just so oh, flaky no. oh, and he sh- literally he literally always leaves the door you can't blame scarlet for thinking the door's ajar because he never completely closes the door because yeah. he always goes, oh, we can't be together, but I love your spirit and I wish I could be with you and you're like shut uh, up man <laughs> even even man. on on Melanie's deathbed, yeah yeah, on her deathbed he's sitting there in the oh, I can't live live on like this and i think the the this it's such just because he plays such a flaky character yet i don't know if he could actually cry on command because okay that whole scene he's like nestled in his his face and his tone <laughs> just doesn't sound upset and then it's so strange because like um gable can cry right and does cry and he's meant to be the much more machismo manly and yet there are scenes where he gets like actually visually upset and i don't know if that was an actor thing but i was like so confused in that melanie death scene that he wasn't like hysterical because his character would be
1: right well that's it that's like despite his flakiness towards scarlet it's like that has been a consistent marriage all the time i mean the amount of husbands that scarlet's gone through in the time that their marriage has you know yeah. for the most part been completely stable it, it it is interesting i mean i wasn't necessarily thrown off by that in particular you could even argue that that's like a defense for for Rhett that he actually is emotional mm-hmm. and, and in love with scarlet and uh, the fact that he does show emotion like that but i think part of that might even go to and it is a director's corner so think it's a good time to tie this in with uh vivian lee's relationship with let's call them the two directors so initially when george was directing i was reading that they had a much closer like intimate Relationship in terms of discussing the character and how she is in the multi-layered facet of her character. And like I was saying, one of the rumours of... Um, one of the rumours of uh, Fleming being hired was because he was sort of a macho man's director and that he's done a lot of silent action films in the 20s and 30s. I think his job before that was a photographer for Woodrow Wilson. Um, so he's got a bit of a history in that regard. And apparently he was a lot more mean and... Uh, unkind to Vivian Lee in terms of the direction, in terms of, you know, mm. oh, you're playing a bitch, so just ham it up. And I think that probably does come off in the film because like you said, I think the balance between her being sort of cunning and mature and growing up and being able to re- get her family out of poverty is is not quite balanced with the number of times she throws temper tantrums like she was when she was 16 at the start of the film.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's not balanced don't think there's well a lot enough. of growth with her character. Mm and it it's quite it becomes quite infuriating in a 4 hour film mm. because it's like i can see it here and it's like i've given it like a, a soft positive rating overall because it's hard to argue with the scope the costume design yeah. the music oh, it's all fantastic. some of the cinematography is in parts is really fantastic mm. um and then sometimes it's a bit stop-starty and a bit more die because it's so dialogue heavy so mm. it's like Sometimes they just kind of do nothing with the camera, and I'm just a bit eh, whatever. Um, but then there are some gorgeous shots, like the first shot, first opening with the father and um, um, Scarlet's father, and her looking oh, over the, the, silhouette the valley the and land, yeah, yeah, like that's a fantastic shot. Yeah, and, oh, it's uh, beautiful. But it, her arc particularly, and I think the story. You know, we could you know we could talk about the whole. We've talked about all the behind the scenes stuff, which definitely degrades the final product because it has such an impact on on the film that you're watching. Mm. Even just her character arc. she Does she change from the start to the... She starts the film alone and she finishes the film alone. And... Well,
1: what really kills me is that after that fly, that that famous line of, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, she turns around and essentially says to herself, I'm just going to try again because tomorrow's another day. And it's like that line really does cement that she really doesn't change. And she grows as a character in terms of she has the capability. She goes from... You know, not wanting to help the soldiers. Oh, I'm bored. I want to go home. To being able to climb her entire family out of poverty line. I like that's there the physical journey. Yeah, there. but he, her character changes is, is not really and, there. You no, know,
0: it's it, it's it's you know, Rhett is um, he's this character that was like, Oh, well, I don't want to be with you because you only want me for my money. Yeah. And then when she gets her own money, it's like, Oh, okay. Well now the the levels are at even. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's not a, a financial capitalistic gain, even though they, they basically set their precedent for their marriage based off capitalism and, and and, (laughs) and the gain that, Oh, well, we'll both be happy because we've got a lot of money. And obviously as we find out in the succeeding hours, that's not enough yet the ending when he goes frankly my dear i don't give a damn it's got nothing to do with wealth or money didn't buy them happiness it it brought them great grievance and now he's just going off to find that actual love and she thinks well i'm gonna start again with what making more money to win him back because she says in that monologue that she's gonna win him back
1: i think if the film was more clearly like a character study on someone who like you said can't take a bloody hint That really is it. And the fact that it matters, that last line does cement to me that she doesn't change and that she's almost obsessive and just unhappy with her situation, whether she is in red. I blame people watching this
0: film being really frustrated by it because even from a pure character point of view, you watch four hours to find out someone learns nothing. It's a
1: long movie for a very simple theme. Yeah.
0: That's that's ridiculous. I'm sorry. It's, It's just... It's so... It's kind of like you know when we attribute it to the the contemporary versions of the Titanic, and I haven't watched Titanic. and I'm sure Titanic will get its. You've seen Titanic. I haven't seen. Titanic.
1: Oh my god, Titanic! But I'm brilliant.
0: Sure, I'm sure it'll get its, 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 its day. Yeah. On the show, but if we talk about Avatar, it's like that was a film that everyone watched and marvelled for a year, mm. and then not only a year or two removed from it, up until obviously these recent trailers people either forgot about it or became incredibly negative of it because it's a very long film for a very simple message mm. and its technical feats were gone with the wind. Um, uh, and uh, it, uh, it, uh, I think it's, uh, you sit here uh. and you go, okay, well, this is a remarkable film. But I, I I remember finishing the film and I went into the other room and I talked to my mum and I was like, I watched a film from the start of the 30s and a film at the end of the 30s and i take the start of the 30s any day of the week over <laughs> the end of the 30s. The film was half the time twice as three times more potent mm. and from a cinematic point of view creative and it was still a it was still a big feat in terms of its technical achievements and yeah. just because it wasn't in Technicolor like, you know, like, <laughs> it, like it that was, was a big
1: deal Zeke that was a big deal at the but, time
0: well wasn't Avatar in 3D <laughs> wasn't that a big deal at the time no, like, that's
1: what I'm saying yeah it's it
0: it's such a showman's way of looking at it and it's like The Wizard of Oz is what Half the time, half Mm. the duration of this film,
1: and And, uses color in a much more smart way. By the way, the Wizard was, but
0: anyway, (laughs) and is not nearly apart from obviously on set dramas. Doesn't have too much, uh, like inappropriateness or ethic unethical considerations. I
1: I will say this: this is going way back to the start of the podcast. We talked about Shrek Two being a banger. Yeah,
0: there are some weird
1: jokes about um, gender dysphoria that do not stand up in Shrek 2. That just, that just reminded me of you saying that. Just wanted to point that out there. Okay. Otherwise, still a banging film. Yeah. But to, back to your point.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I just... I can't sit here and go, like, I like um, Gable's performance in this. Um, I like both of them. Like, they're both really good front mm. man and front woman and they do present really well and Scarlett has Vivian. Vivian... Or Hera? Oh, sorry, Vivian Lee. Very Vivian Lee. Character does have some really strong scenes, but then Mm -hmm. is marked by almost repetitive. By the second half, aspect is particularly prominent with both of them basically having the same scene in a slightly different setting, (laughs) the same (laughs) argument. I guess you could argue, oh, what's the decline of a relationship, and. They do throw divorce around and divorces, even in the 1939 eyes, would have still been marred and shunned and this is, they're treated with the same weight of at the time and so divorce was like a last, last resort. Mm. Um, well,
1: even just the expectation that having a dead husband... I mean, that's a great scene in itself when she's the first time she's all dressed in black and, and she's crying, not because her husband died, she couldn't give two shits about Charles, but just the fact that she now has to sort of wear this this cloak of dread on her and that she has to look like a sad with when she, she can't party. And there's a great moment when the camera pans over to her and she's like sort of dancing on the spot, but subtly enough that no one can tell. Yeah. So it's like the uh, just the, the sort of the repression that I guess women in general would have in terms of the marriage and the fact that she's always referred to by different names because she's married to different people. So she's always, you know, referred to by different yeah, surnames I, and I, even different first names.
0: I think, you know, it's it's one of those things that, you know, and just having this conversation about different names, and having mm. to, as a woman navigating this world, navigating yeah. such a turbulent and tumultuous time, while always having that one that you've always wanted but never could have. Right. I get that. That's the the under that's the underbelly of this film. Yeah. But it it sort of it doesn't translate. I don't think well because she's just attention clearly from a directorial point of view Mm. needed to be put more on her because it is her film Mm. not his film and him and by focusing more on her and her fixation but from a point of not being bratty but from a point of actual lovingness Mm. and maybe maybe the relation uh, the fact of the matter is her and her relationship with Ashley needed more context and depth we needed to believe that relationship a little bit more or the or at least the attainability of it i think to buy into the plot before like
1: i guess so because like without extra like you said like without it, sort of a deeper realization of what that could be and what that means for our character if she achieves this goal we sort of watch her from a, like a distance yeah. kind of removed from that and like oh well, she's kind of not psychotic, but like we view her in that way where she's, we see her for the obsession that she's. Well, in the second half of the film, we
0: like, we don't empathize with her at all, really. No, no. Um, and we actually empathize with Rhett Butler. Mm. And, and we, you know, so when he turns out, and goes, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. You're like, yeah, like the fear to tell yeah. like, 'cause you're just like, you've treated him so bad he's yeah. done everything. He's got you out of fires, got you from sickness. <laughs> you still still fires. pushed you down a flight of stairs, but um Oh well she tripped. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> <laughs> but that
1: you know what, that scene is a great that's a great point to what I said with the, the it just feels like this happens and this happens. Literally within five seconds yeah. of him making a joke about her losing a baby, she falls down a flight of stairs. Yeah, That happens within five seconds of each other.
0: Yeah, and then...
1: It just feels like it's trying to rush through. That's why I totally believe there's a four and a half hour cut in the, in the editing room, is because it, it feels like the last half is actually kind of rushing through plot points. There, no, should, thought, there look, shouldn't have been that this, many this, plot this, points to begin yeah, with.
0: There shouldn't be, because it's really not... A, I think it loses its essence very quickly because Scarlet's character has clearly been put a little bit to the wayside, and if it becomes this thing where it's like honestly and i can't believe we're gonna target i'll talk about another really long film but you talk about boyhood Mm. and you talk about how the boy's mother navigates through different different husbands from an socio-economic point of view really just to keep their family alive and keep them sustainable and keep them in a state of financial wealth also that hunger for connection and romance that's
1: there i think it's more of that than the the former but uh,
0: yeah um And, you know, Scarlet essentially goes through a plethora of of husbands for that pursuit of some form of... Well, mostly just to get back at Ashley, trying (laughs) to get Ashley's attention. Exactly. And I think it loses its essence immediately. If this was about a woman in the Deep South trying to circumnavigate a very turbulent time of history, and we're following her over the years, Mm. and her end goal is basically financial stability, whether that's through a man or her own devices. I think that's a far more interesting story than yep. her fixation on a teenage romance because we aren't really buying into it. I mean, from the f- opening scene with Ashley, he's already set to marry... Um, uh,
1: Melanie. Melanie.
0: Yeah. And is already fixated on Melanie. Mm. And that's in the first 20 minutes of the film. Yeah. And then you've got another three and a half hours. <laughs>
1: Well I think that that's when it comes back to like I'm never watching the film and be like man I really hope her and Ashley get together. That that's never what I'm thinking when I'm watching the film. I'm what because you're right it's so cemented that it's just not going to happen and then the characters especially Ashley and Melanie are so you know they're already in their own path and they're already together. Mm-hmm. I got to point out the one line that kind of you know we're already talking about enough like controversies and and weirdness with this film but you literally have a line where she's like um, where Ashley says she's part of my blood we understand each other because of course they're cousins I'm like oh my god <laughs> this film never yeah, gives up <laughs> no <laughs> but, and, it's,
0: and, and I think um, Scarlett's dad says something oh they're, they're married because they're, they're going to get married because they're cousins and yeah, that's exactly. what they do and you're like exactly Okay, moving on. Yeah, it's just south. Gonna, just it's keep the South. Just keep going. The South was great. It was the death of a great people. <laughs> <laughs> a great land swashed away by the Yankees. Oh, how, that was it. How could oh, they? Just horrible. Oh, brilliant. Just horrible. But
1: but to what I was saying earlier, I never watched the film being like, oh, I really hope they get together. I'm watching the film but like, I hope she understands how frivolous this, this obsession is. And she never does. Even through rags and riches, or the journey of going between the two, and come into that realization of you almost it's you almost wish line. the
0: ret line happens an hour earlier, and then you spend the next forty minutes her discovering that she doesn't need a man, or she needs she realizes what she's missed out on and tries to get ret back for the final time right, or something like that. I don't know. The reality is it, they don't even leave. The, I'm talking about that. Ashley leaves the door ajar, but the reality is the plot doesn't even leave the door ajar because it's, it's an illusion because it's like, what if, what if Ashley's character marries Melanie because they're going to war and it becomes this rush job marriage, right? much like Scarlett's is to Charles. Yeah. Suddenly the door is way more open for that, Attainability, and right. she may not get Ashley in the end. But the fact of the matter is, but is we might... as
1: an audience would believe that there's more of a chance well, and that would be. More we believe Scarlet's. her
0: rationale a little bit more, right. not just that she thinks she's prettier and deserves what she deserves. Mm. But that's oh, a really good point, actually. But they go to. There's that uncertainty over the war. There's tension building between Melanie and Scarlett over the course of the war yep. for multiple things. It's not just about survival. It's the fact that you took my man. We don't, like, they both then have that rationale that, oh, well, he really loves me because There's a true me.
1: deniability if if there is sort yeah. of a call to question of why they got married in the first place. And
0: I feel like that that's a really good way of at least fueling the believability a little bit mm, more.
1: Yeah.
0: It makes Ashley, her interaction when Ashley comes back in the, bar, the run-down barn with them both chatting, makes it a little bit more, like, you can buy into Scarlet's delusion. Right, yeah. Whereas the door's shut from the get-go. Rhett overhears this conversation and makes fun of how she's disillusioned (laughs) from the start. That's a great,
1: like, classic love, like, introduction is him just sort
0: of eavesdropping.
1: And then she's like, oh, you should have made your presence. Oh, but you were having such a wonderful, lovely conversation. (laughs) But to your point, when I watch that scene where he returns to war and and Melanie sprints to, to give him a hug and obviously Scarlet wants to do it too. But then Mammy's the one that's like, no, that's not your husband. Don't do that. I'm with her. I'm not with Scarlet. Yeah. I'm not there being like, oh no, Scarlet, you run run and grab him in his arms. I'm removed from that situation because yeah. you're right. The door's closed and the door is so clearly closed in the beginning
0: of the film. So then why am I watching for the next two hours?
1: <laughs> it could have been because, yeah, there's an interesting character growth there for Scarlett. To yeah, to go through this backdrop of the war where she fought, like she crumbles to pieces and had to build herself I'm, back up.
0: I'm not telling but, someone how to write a novel from 1936, <laughs> but I'm telling someone how to write uh, a novel. Oh no! No, I, I really I don't think legit- this
1: film's impervious to criticism. I think you're right. That is a really excellent point. It would have been a more
0: interesting dynamic. Well, it would have bought more into the plot if we have to keep the plot the exact same way then you need to leave the door. You need me to believe that Scarlett does belong with Ashley, even if it ends up the exact same way. Yeah. Ashley being like, I've been loyal this whole time. You just keep wasting your time. Yeah. Um, And I don't know. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where it's like you needed, but the fact that in the first 20 minutes, I'm like, Oh, well, he's already saying no. Mm. And I guess we could buy into, Oh, maybe in an hour and a half, you might, you know, you might have an affair. They might have an affair. Yeah. There's that. They do
1: kiss. They do kiss at one point.
0: Yeah. In the midpoint of the film. And then what's the next, once again, what's the next two hours? Yeah.
1: It's, it doesn't change anything that kiss. You still know the door's shut. It's, yeah. If anything, it just sort of makes Ashley less. I think you're right. I think Ashley needed to be more assertive than he already is with, it's not going to happen. But that, the fact that there is a call to question on the marriage in the first place and that, Maybe the engagement is announced after the war is confirmed, which, of course, in the opening minutes of the film, it's a rumor. Oh, we we might be going to war, we might be, going, but but it's not yet. Yeah. So it's 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 sort of just setting. How up do we the fix backdrop gone the with the wind? <laughs> <laughs> and look, I don't think there's a lot of. I mean, if this film was remade today, I think it would be interesting to see
0: how much they change, especially. Does this film ever get remade? That's probably a really valid question.
1: I think I think there's a chance. In the same way that um, uh, Spielberg redid um, West Side Story and that a lot of the reason that film got remade was simply to sort of make it a bit more PC-friendly. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I don't think it's as good of a film for other reasons, for unrelated reasons. But I could totally see that. The thing I'm wondering about is, if you have this journey of Scarlet, you kind of have to have her on the losing side of the war. You kind of have to have her in in... you know in georgia where there's literally 1600 extras all scattered across the floor for that you know that amazing shot which i'm sure we'll talk about soon but you kind of need her on that losing end to have that story is there a version of the story that works where she isn't part of the confederacy
0: no yeah no but which it's is tricky but i think it's the atonement side it's mm. the recognize it's the recognition like like everything it it's the even in Gone with the Wind there is a certain um growth if there is any growth there might be a little bit of growth that comes from the fact that the the Yankees don't bring about the end of the world um may yeah. like by the end of the the film the the war is is very much over yeah and America has become um has has moved on culturally um there's obviously still seeds of it here and there but life moves on and and they've become one people again yeah um to a certain extent everyone
1: has to pay taxes again <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like
0: the taxes. over the over the oh the taxation through the roof weird anti-capital or oh, yankees tax we didn't tax and you're like okay weird
1: i just want my <laughs> slaves back i don't want to
0: pay taxes <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, and then
0: there was that whole the whole conversation with the building company, yeah. where it's like, oh, I would rather hire um, African American, right, than the convicts. Yeah, yeah. Very odd. But
1: then Scar's like, we have to pay them more. Yeah. See, that's part of like it could have been part of her journey, and like the bluntness and the the capitalistic bluntness she has to take in order to feed her family, and it's an interesting way to word it, but. Again, I like just it's, its presence is, yeah, yeah. I I think this film.
0: I think there's an atonement aspect to it. So, not that they have to go completely the old other way, but there needs to be that recognition. And you would probably, you would definitely have to remake, or at least revisit Mammy's character and sort right. of allow recognition and address it addressing of that there and perhaps more the- could particularly this this film does have a have points of where it, there are characters sitting down discussing the war mm. and discussing the ethics and sc- debating the um sort of their their perspectives on the war and there are ways of of enveloping that because i think it's important to talk about where it's like at the end of the day even with confederates you know these people that were blatantly wrong with their cultural Points of view from an ethical point of view, that doesn't necessarily mean they were wholeheartedly bad people. And no, in the, no. that and, sense. And
1: I think this film really does sugarcoat a lot of those themes. And it at times, it feels like, oh, it we're just following these people's lives. It doesn't want to stamp too much the the uh, the, the viewpoint of like the slavery, ownership, and all
0: of that. Yeah, there needs to be there needs to be certain you know like i said you take that ashley line mm. you know there it maybe it's a film that will never be revisited because no one would ever take on such a yeah such a difficult film to tack on because it has Nowadays, stuff yeah, that makes definitely. you know even in my experience like i said it made me feel kind of it made me feel uncomfortable because it's yeah. like it clearly has an agenda or a perspective mm. at least and for a film to get as much recognition as this film did at the time because right. of its technical feats and and stuff, it, that doesn't sit well with me. Right. And it's interesting when you look to Letterboxd and the reviews, it's so polarising. <laughs> it's like some <laughs> people are some like... Polarising views, yeah. Um, but I, I think if, even Would then, you call this
1: film a four-hour propaganda piece?
0: Like some people have?
1: Yeah, well, that's that's obviously what I'm thinking of, that review... Because it's like pro-Confederacy. He's like, yeah, okay, easily. Especially with the wording of the of the text they put in there. Which, by the way, I want to shout at the early, the letter, like expositional things with the letters mm. and the way it pans down and reveal the two rings that she's holding and, and the fact that the light kind of, the the harsh light is sort of shining on the words mm. that are actually important. I kind of, I really appreciated that. That's a very clever of Very biblical word. looking. It is
0: very biblical, isn't it?
1: I, I thought that was a clever way to highlight specific text and what to focus um, on. But, to, but,
0: yeah. No, pro- propaganda, no. Heavily subjective and, <laughs> and bias, yes. Because propaganda, propaganda is a little different. I think that this film very much had a perspective, a very romanticised, ridiculously, a candy-crush level romanticised <laughs> sweet view of the South and, and that it should never be forgiven for and should actively, if any film course or film studies you choose this film needs to actively um, recognise it to an extent because um, I think that that discussion is is vital, the historical context and the cultural context that this film has because it's so fluffy compared Mm. to what actually would have happened or the perspectives of the people we follow. And I think... That that always needs to be recognised. And if this film was ever to be revisited, not that I, I really think even in this conversation it's become apparent to me it probably never will. Right. Um there would need to be serious remediations um from it. But it's it's I don't know. It's one of those films that I've I'm happy I've watched at some point in my life. Will I ever revisit it? I don't know. <laughs> Um, I want
1: to read, I just found a piece of text that comes shortly after the intermission. Um, Basically, I want to find, oh yeah, and then with them came another invader, more cruel and vicious than any other they had fought before, the carpetbagger. (laughs) Which is basically just sort of people being like, hey, we want to take advantage of you and give you some money for your land. But the way they, even just that wording right there of like vicious, cruel you know, and like you said earlier at the start of the film with like this pristine land, the destruction of a of a culture. It's yeah. like I mean the word is the wording is so that's the closest you're gonna get to propaganda in this film.
0: And it's really funny because the person I'm not sure I haven't got the novelist's name, but they weren't even from the South, I'm pretty sure.
1: <laughs> Was it Margaret Mitchell?
0: Yeah, I believe so, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's the name I got here. It doesn't say I'm assuming that's the writer because yeah, she's so. certainly not the producer. I think they they
0: brought multiple people on set as like Southern consultants to ensure the accent and the authenticity. Oh, but interesting. Had to redo a bit of the dialogue because oh, okay. it was not up to cultural part. But, oh. Yeah, I don't know. It's a really interesting. It must have been a really interesting film at the time because you know you're only. Like I said, you're only 70, 60, 70 years removed from this time, and mm. that means families come from, at that point, it's still definable. Like, yeah, the, there are
1: people can, involved in the Civil War who would have still been alive to watch this story. and Yeah, or, or, bo- or, both or sides. even just
0: associated with yeah. Confederates or, or Yankees. Um, and it's, yeah, it was definitely, it's a film that I think needs to be watched by any cinema lover, but obviously always take with a with a pinch of salt and i think you become a better become a better film analyst for watching it because yeah you need to because then you start to really gain understandings on how social cultural context and and sheer scope this film has and, and magnitude
1: yeah no absolutely before we move on to our highlight scenes i just want to quote hattie mcdaniel who uh, responded to some of the criticisms, specifically criticisms from African Americans, uh, for supposedly for playing in a supposedly racist film? Which I, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to put, put one hand in the other. What I think of her statement, other than just I think this is a bowler-ass statement she made, and it actually reminded me of some of the things that the extras of like Django Unchained and Twelve Years a Slave talked about, where they they sort of love being a part of telling the story of slavery and and like jumping mm-hmm. from film to film to tell the story. But her response to the criticisms was that she would rather make $700 a week playing a maid than earning $7 actually being one. Which so I thought, that's a pretty sick statement. <laughs> I, I low-key love that. But that goes back to the capitalistic argument we were even talking about within the film.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it could be one of those. It, it, it's also product of the time. You know, someone's, like... Someone's got to play that role. And, yeah. maybe, you know, I guess you could argue at least it's not someone painted... that is true that is true um was that what you you brought up west side story yeah it didn't disappear how many Puerto Ricans
1: were in the original yeah (laughs) it's not a high
0: number so it's like you know that and that's 35 years later Mm. or 25 years later but it's like one of those things where it's like yeah you got to take that and you know you brought up the, the telling the story slavery i mean it's it's Acknowledged that that was a part of it, and, and yeah, it obviously isn't at all addressed. But it, I mean, in in film, it's like like we said, this is probably why this film will never be revisited because there's no real. Is there any real way of painting positive Confederate light? I think on a war that was literally defined by slavery, yeah, what, it's, it's a very tough.
1: That's it. You would have to take a drastically different angle on the whole story and probably change massive parts of it. I, like you said, I don't think you could change, you know, that basically that, that Scarlet's now a Yankee from the North. I don't think you can change the script to that extent, no. but you definitely have to play more with who, who are the more villainous characters, the more um, classically evil characters. I guess you kind of have to flip the switch there because the Yankees, uh sort of depiction in this film that just they break into houses and sort of make creepy comments to to women it's it's not the greatest portrayal so it it's not even just the text It's literally some of the performances that are very uh you yeah, have a quarter <laughs> 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 oh goodness right, Jake, i, was I you would gonna... have to fundamentally change <laughs> the story of the film to make
0: it work today what was your highlight scene um i
1: actually have a few scenes i want to give a quick shout out cool i'll probably say my favorite scene and i've already mentioned it before is is that big silhouette wide and her sort of her it it probably is her lowest point even though it is a midpoint of the film Mm -hmm. but when she says as god is my witness i'll never be hungry again that's just that's such a great like i said the first half of this film i think is wonderfully paced and and plotted and i think her growth especially as she has to birth the child of melanie and and that whole thing she has to tread through bodies and obviously has to escape the burning of a lantern um, which in itself was a like a fantastical feat of filmmaking. I know they used some of the sets from... Uh, well, they used the Great Wall set from King Kong, for example, from the 1933 film, of course. So a lot of history there. But it's like that moment is so well-earned, in my opinion. And it gets you so excited to get to the second half of the film, which is unfortunately a lot more muddled and, mm-hmm. and clumsy, I feel like. Um, but I thought that was just an absolutely fantastic scene. And I want to give a shout-out to the scene where the, all the girls are reading David Copperfield waiting for the guys to return home and like even though reading through this novel Mm. but you can see on their faces the sweat and the stress of them like they just cannot take their minds off what's potentially happening outside of the house I thought that was a really cool scene Um, and I also love the shot pretty early on when it's sort of that that side frame of of Ashley and Melly holding hands before they burst the door open and you see like hundreds of extras in this big open space as the camera flows through I thought that was really cool filmmaking moments there for me yeah yeah what about you what's your highlights thing, Zeke? oh
0: did i steal um, any yeah I, I i i do like that uh the wedding that sort of opening hall mm. shot that's a really handy one um i i i'm a big fan of probably look i mean there are some really good um shots with particularly the staircase in the second half how it's oh yeah. darkness and cool those are, those he quite... carries
1: her away into the darkness at the top of the stairs. That's a that's a great eerie shot. Yeah, very eerie.
0: <laughs> um, I think the burning Atlanta like scene mm. it is a it really helps solidify the epicness of the, of the picture. Yeah, it's the the Titanic hitting the iceberg. It's <laughs> and watching it go down. It, it definitely, like you said, it does motivate you to get to the second half of the film. Unfortunately. Yeah. I don't, like you said, I, I really do think it does deteriorate quite quickly in the second half. And... You
1: know what doesn't deteriorate in the second half, which what? I think could easily be one of our highlight scenes, is the death of Bonnie. <laughs> she falls out that horse. <laughs> I'm sorry, that is so like unintentionally funny to me. I know it like yeah. it, it plays off the way her dad died in a similar vein, and I d- I'm sorry, I laughed when Bonnie died. <laughs> look daddy ah (laughs) it's so mean oh christ that's awful that's so awful that That she does but it's funny
0: Gone with the Wind (laughs) is currently out only on rental yeah Yeah, I had to rent it off YouTube and you saw it
1: on DVD of course
0: yeah on wide release uh, you saw it backwards I did I watched the second half (laughs) You and you know first. the funniest thing is the funniest thing is you can watch the second half of the film and you still get the film. <laughs> it's funny. You're watching the the worse half. You could just finish on the burning of Atlanta and you, you're all good. But
1: oh uh, man, uh, leave it up to your imagination after she makes her will
0: to God. But <laughs> which kind of isn't it the same sort of ending though? I'll never be poor again. I'll win him back. I g- Two I guess, proclamations.
1: I guess so, but like the even I'll never be hungry again. Like that is more rooted around her home of Tara. So yeah, you know I, I think that's a a better end note than I'm just going to chase Clark Gable again. But uh
0: <laughs> well, it is not it like is. we're going to have many films with Clark Gable in them. But Jake, what's new to films and streaming platforms this week? You tried.
1: You tried on that one. I think I, I did it right. Oh, it was okay.
0: Okay. What? what we'll answer, the, answer the question because I don't know
1: <laughs> alright I'll, I'll answer for you Zeke, if you dare coming to Netflix this week we have the Australian classic rabbit proof fence how many times did you watch this film in school Zeke? I've
0: never seen this what? film what yeah. I have it on my cell phone I brook. must have
1: seen this like seven times throughout my I know, it's school the go- school it's like the
0: go to media film
1: <laughs> how have you not seen it that's insane uh, uh, you skipped all those classes you just never watched it that's insane yeah. Uh, well there you go it's coming to Netflix for you as well as the last volume of Stranger Things 4 which is just the last two episodes but they are feature length episodes I think one of them is at least two and a half hours long which is absurd but nevertheless exciting I will watch it when it comes out this weekend uh, coming to stand you've got The Hurt Locker Midsommar The Peanut Butter Falcon The Aussie film Ride Like a Girl it's Keeping the Aussie Tradition and both Clash and Ruff of the Titans I will say there is a scene in Man vs. B that Blake compared to Midsommar and it might be the most horrible thing I've ever heard in my life. But also the funniest thing. <laughs> just as funny and as horrible as Bonnie
0: still dying. Getting, still getting nightmares from Midsommar.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, well then Man vs. B is going to gonna be right up your alley. Coming to Primus week, we've got Get Out, Lady Bird, 21 and 22 Jump Street, Captain Underpants, Robocop, Legally Blonde, 1 and 2. etc. Just a bunch of random films dropping. Uh, you've also got the start of the uh, Westworld fourth season on Binge, which I guess is out now.
0: Yep. Oh, it's on Binge. There you uh, go. Guess what I'm doing when I go home. <laughs> oh,
1: very exciting. I will say Binge and Paramount Plus, I actually I couldn't get what comes out in the first few days of July, so there might be a couple of really cool things that I might have to just mention next week are already okay. out. So just a little disclaimer there. And coming to cinema, there's not really a lot. You've got Ali and Ava, who are two lonely people who develop a deep connection despite the lingering legacy of their past relationships. Is this just is this the gone with the wind remake? <laughs> that could be it. Oh my god. And also previewing at Hoyt's from July first is the Black Phone, which sees a sadistic masked killer, played by you mentioned him earlier, Zeke, Ethan, Ethan. Hawke, uh, who kidnaps a shy but clever thirteen year old boy and keeps him held in a soundproof basement.
0: It's getting good ratings.
1: I mean the fact that Ethan Hawke is playing like a horror villain, that is sick. Yeah, I need to watch it just for that alone. I think it's more
0: psychological thriller. Oh, horror, still. But still love it. He's got a very creepy mask. Yeah. Oh, very good. Very good.
1: Well, that's it. That's all that's coming to cinemas this week.
0: No dramas. Well, that's it for our Countdown Through the Decades Retrospective Yay. for the third year running. Jake, it well is done. time to move back into the realm of the contemporary. But what are we watching?
1: Well, the world of contemporary, hopefully it's a little bit more <laughs> PC than... Where we've ended this decade's challenge. <laughs> See, oh, we're going to go on a decades challenge. A hundred years in the past, we end up in the Confederacy. <laughs> oh, I love
0: Star Wars. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the Confederate of Independent Systems.
1: Oh goodness me. Well, we're not. We're gonna. We're going to slowly get back to the contemporary. Um, of course, we're going to be kind of meet halfway in the middle, Zeke, with our next film. It is uh, Baz Luhrmann's latest film. It's called Elvis.
2: There are some who'd make me out to be the villain of this here story. Let's don't let a good thing die. Are you born with destiny? Or does it
0: just come? Knocking at your door. He's a young singer from Memphis, Tennessee. Give him a warm hayride welcome, Mr. Elvis Presley. Get a haircut, buttercup.
2: In that moment, I watched that skinny boy transform into a superhero.
0: my destiny
1: the life story of Elvis Presley as played by Austin Butler hey look Butler there you go a little tie in as seen for the complicated relationship he shared with his manager uh, Colonel Tom
0: Parker played by Tom Hanks yes the guy who reappropriated a whole culture's <laughs> dance moves but... <laughs> 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 no. the Bill Burr <laughs> stuff <laughs> it's actually true though it's um, so true yeah
1: I'm curious so... how well we talked about this the other week didn't we we're curious mm. at how much Elvis is actually gonna touch on that. Yeah. The movie. Which is two hours forty minutes. That's actually the reason I haven't seen it yet. I was gonna go see it with Kirsty Friday night. Yeah. Lou really wants to watch it So we're going to watch it We'll watch it with our girls Yes Respectively Or on a double date We shall see There you go That's a juicy cliffhanger The (laughs) The audience will find out next week Thank you for joining us They'll find out how much we like each other
0: (laughs) Thank you for joining us For the Cinema Side Show podcast I was Zeke. I was Jake And we'll catch you next week With Elvis